Hey folks, uh, I think it is time for us to get started. I hope our live stream is working and those of you that are joining us live online or watching us later, uh, welcome. Those that are here gathered uh, in the room with us, we are certainly glad um, that we have the ability to be able to, uh, to do this. I want to open us in prayer and then we will get started together tonight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our chance to come and to study your word and to think together um, about the end, um, that today marks one day closer than we were yesterday, uh, entirely unknowing to us about uh, what the future holds. Uh, but we can be certain of this, uh, that you and your timing uh, will return and that you will judge the living and the dead. And we thank you, God, that on that day, we have no need of fear because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ has promised to us life eternal. And so, Father, would we um, learn well? Uh, would we think well? Would we be open to uh, seeing the scriptures possibly in a light that is maybe a little different than we've thought about them before while having uh, grace towards one another uh, when we do disagree and this being a subject uh, upon which often there will be disagreement within the church. Let us not be disagreeable in that disagreement, we pray. Uh, all of this we ask that this would be an encouragement to the church that we would know for certain that Christ is returning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, last week, just uh, briefly, I want to talk about how we started, par partially because um, I was uh, very much jet-lagged last week and just returned from Africa. And um, I think I got through all of it, but I'm going to use some terms. I'm going to say some things this week that... Um, are, are going to be, that I unpacked further last week, and I want to make sure that we're all talking about the same things, that when I say something, you, you know what, what I'm meaning. And so uh, I started last week with what the non-negotiables are, and I recognize there's some people that are here this week that weren't last, or maybe you're joining us for the first time online. And I'm going to talk today particularly about some things that, that have various interpretations and I'm going to attempt to present them all uh, equitably, uh, even though I believe one of them, I am going to present them all, I hope, equitably. And I tried to do that last week as well and will in the future of this study. Uh, but there are some things that are non-negotiable. And I want to remind us of that, that there is a, visibly, a visible bodily return of Christ a future promise of resurrection of all people, the righteous who have found their righteousness through the gospel of Jesus, having the imparted righteousness of Christ to us uh, will be uh, judged according to that righteousness and will enter into eternal life. And those who have rejected Christ, uh, who, have, uh, who are counting on their own righteousness uh, will uh, be judged accordingly uh, and will be separated from Christ uh, in eternity. This, these are essential doctrines of the Christian faith, that Jesus is, will vis visibly bodily return, that there will be a definitive end to uh, this age, um, and that there will be another age of 
uh, eternity where believers will spend with, with Jesus. The, the, this, these are not, the, while these are debated ideas, they are not debated ideas within the church. The church believes that Jesus is coming back. It is the, it is the surrounding details that we so often have debated over the last uh, two millennia, and we are not going to solve it here at Nansman River Baptist Church. So if you've come here, we have a little bit bigger, bigger of a crowd this week than we did last week. So maybe you've come because you're like, oh, my friend told me, somebody told me at church, you know, that we're going we're gonna to solve all the mysteries of the end times. You have come to the wrong place because that's not even my goal. Uh, my stated goal in all of this is to try to give our congregation somewhat of a firm foundation in what is known as eschatology, the eschaton being last things, ology study, the study of the last things, so that when I preach through First and Second Thessalonians this summer and fall and Daniel next uh, winter, uh, we will know, we, I won't have to go through everything on Sunday morning, and maybe that's why you're joining us uh, later, maybe you're listening to this in the midst of one of these sermon series because I don't have the time to do everything on Sunday mornings that I would like to do. And so I'm going to have to preach it from a very specific perspective, some of which, uh, some of those issues, particularly in First Thessalonians, I'm going to deal with even today, some of the Daniel stuff I'm going to deal with uh, later. So I, then I presented some terms last week. Most of what we dealt with was just introducing terms. I'm going to use some of these terms this week. So let me just quickly highlight them. Uh, four approaches to end time writing, uh, the, the, what was known as the preterist, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, the preterist approach, uh, which pretty much affirms at least full preterism, preterism, even what's known as partial, because sometimes there's partial views of this where you take two and combine them. The preterism see, see uh, the preterist view sees all of uh, apocalyptic writing like the book of Revelation, like the Olivet Discourse we're going to spend a lot of time in today uh, as being fully fulfilled in the first century. So in the lifetime of those who heard it, the idealist view is a sy symbolic representation, ongoing struggle of good and evil that, that every new generation in the church finds kind of some, uh, some mess in this because they see the struggle of good and evil. The historicist view is kind of this, un, this progressive unfolding, uh, and these events uh, are affirmed. that they're, they're laying out Christian history, but we don't really know where the, it's laying out Christian history until we get past it and we can kind of find its affirmation. And then the futurist view, which is probably the dominant view in American um, uh, in, the, in the pews of American churches. It's one of the most highly um, influenced views over the last 150 years in Western Christianity. And that is most, if not all, of prophetic and apocalyptic writing of the New Testament and even some of the Old Testament is painting a future view, something that will one day literally physically happen um, and that we can somehow get some ideas about what that is very much popularized through the rise of what is known as dispensationalism, which I'm going to spend some time next week explaining dispensationalism a little further to you. It's going to fit better with what I'm talking about next week. And then ultimately, these, these differing views have led people towards different camps, uh, eschatological camps, right? Right. Um, 
primarily surrounding your view of the millennial kingdom. What does the end of Revelation mean when it says that Jesus is going to reign uh, on earth? And that is, uh, that, that is, it is purely figurative. That's known as amillennialism. Um, post-millennialism, that Jesus will actually not return until after the millennial reign of Christ. And then two different forms of premillennialism that Jesus would return and establish a literal millennial reign of Christ, one of those being historic premillennialism, and then the other, which is more tied to dispensationalism, which uh, is a pre-tribulation rapture, a literal tribulation, so pre-trib, premillennial. And we're going to talk through some of those things today and then in, in coming weeks to, to kind of help you get a better understanding of what historically the church has believed. That's my goal in this is I just want you to kind of have an understanding of what the church believes, and then I'm going to teach in the midst of some of that and kind of show my cards occasionally, at least of what, uh, where I have landed on, on uh, some of these subjects. So what we're taking up today really is the signs of the end. We're, we're, we're not yet at dealing with Jesus has returned. By the time we get to the end, if I have enough time, if I get through everything I've prepared for today, we're going we're gonna to end up with kind of the return of Jesus or at least some of the questions surrounding it. But, but I want to talk about the signs of the end, particularly as it relates to Matthew chapter 24, the, what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's known as the Olivet Discourse because uh, Jesus is, is talking to his disciples about the, uh, uh, the destruction of the temple and the return of the Messiah from the Mount of Olives. So sitting on the Mount of Olives, uh, looking across the Kidron Valley, I've been in this spot. It's a really neat spot. You could go with me to Israel next January and you could sit in this spot and I'll remind you of this. You get to sit on the Mount of Olives, look out across the Kidron Valley and see the Temple Mount. And Jesus is sitting in this place talking to his disciples about what's going to happen there in Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew 24, so if you want to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Matthew chapter 24, because I'm going to walk through some of these verses uh, in, a, in a few minutes. And then how does that tie, what I hope to be able to show you tonight, is how, or at least ask this question, how does what Jesus says in Matthew 24, as it relates to the destruction of the temple and the signs of the end leading up to the return of the Messiah, how does that relate to all of these judgments that we see, 21 judgments that we see in three different cycles, so three cycles of seven judgments in Revelation. Are these describing the same things? Are these describing different things? And throughout history, different uh, interpretations uh, have landed in different places on that, and I'm going to be able to kind of hopefully walk you through what some of those are. But we're going to start in chapter in, in Matthew chapter 24. There is a version of the Olivet Discourse in all of the Synoptic Gospels. So Mark has one, Matthew has one, Luke has one. Um, Luke's definitively is talking about the destruction of the temple, and it, that's that's not even really debated even amongst futurists. The, the, the longest one, the most detailed account is in Matthew and some questions are raised. This is the question as we work through this that we're ultimately gonna have to answer. How much of this is talking about things that have already happened, at least from our perspective? From Jesus's perspective, how much of that was things that were going to happen soon versus things that were going to happen later? 
from our perspective, things that have already happened versus things that have not yet happened. And some people are going to answer that question from um, a more preterist understanding and say all of Matthew 24 or almost all of Matthew 24 has already happened. Some are going to answer from a futurist standpoint and say little or none of Matthew 24 has yet to take place. And some are going to take a middle position and say maybe part of it has already happened and part of it hasn't happened yet. And so we'll, uh, you're gonna, I'm going to ask you kind of find yourself. And again, these are all within the bounds of good biblical interpretation. Godly Christian people are going to end up in different places and we can all go to the same church and, and be fine to get, do ministry together. But here's what we see in, in Matthew chapter 24, okay? The, Jesus has just pronounced uh, a series of woes. Again, Matthew 23 influences 24. He's pronounced a series of woes against uh, the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, showing, really laying to bear how they have been terrible spiritual guides for Israel. Ultimately leading to the Messiah is standing in front of you and you've missed it. That if there's anybody who should have got it, it would have been the Pharisees and they've missed it, okay? So then at the end of 23, Jesus pronounces judgment on Jerusalem because Jerusalem is represented by her leaders and her leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these were the religious elite of the day. They've missed it. They've missed the Messiah. And so Jesus, after pronouncing these woes against them, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to him, how often would I have gathered your children together as hens gathered or brood under the wings and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is pronouncing judgment against Jerusalem. So he's just judged the leaders of Jerusalem. And now he's, he's saying that even the city itself is going to be desolate. And this raises significant questions in his, the minds of his disciples. So in the beginning of 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so Jesus is in the temple. He pronounces this, these woes. He's leaving, going out. There used to be a, a, a bridge that would span across the Kidron Valley. It's not there anymore, but in antiquity there was. There was a bridge. Likely Jesus is either on that bridge or heading towards that bridge. And his disciples are marveling at the temple. And if, uh, for those of you, there's several people in this room went a few years ago with me to Jerusalem, to Israel. It really is something to see. The, the remains of the temple mount are, are very impressive. I mean, very impressive. The re, all that's left is portions of the retaining wall. None of the actual building, because Jesus's words are true here. None of the actual building was left by the Romans when they destroyed it in 70 AD, about 40 years after this happens, after Jesus pronounces this. Um, judgment against Jerusalem. Um, it, it's a very impressive building, even just the retaining wall that's left, highly impressive. And that's what the disciples are looking at. They're like, this is a building that's going to remain for all of history. All right. That's kind of what they're thinking. And Jesus has just said, Jerusalem's going to be desolate. And so you can kind of use the progression 
uh, of thought that the disciples are going through, right? How is this marvelous city, God's city, going to be left desolate? Look how majestic this building is, okay? That's what they see. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, it is going, so connect the end of chapter, remember that Jesus didn't speak in chapters and verses, okay? Matthew didn't write this in chapters and verses. This is directly connected to chapter 23. This is all one thing, all right? It's gonna be desolate. Look how great these, these building, this building is. Oh no, there's not gonna be any of this left, all right? So they've now crossed into the Kidron Valley. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. Beautiful picture of Jerusalem with the, the Temple Mount looming in the forefront because that's the first thing you see when you look from the Mount of Olives onto the Temple Mount or onto the city of Jerusalem. The first thing you see in your, in your eye is, is the temple. It's dead center, okay? The Golden Gate being in the very middle of it, which is no longer open now, but it would have been open then. And uh, so as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So outside of the hearing of everybody, they wanna know like, what do you mean, right? Uh, tell us, and they asked a, 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 a double question. It's one question in two parts. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So when's this gonna happen, the destruction of Jerusalem? And when is the second coming of the Messiah? So they're starting to piece together that Jesus is saying there's gonna be two different messianic comings, the one that's already happened and another, there's gonna be a period of time and they wanna know some more details. So they've come to him in private looking for some additional information. And what Jesus gives them is nine signs. Between verses four and 14, Jesus gives nine signs of the end, okay? The first is that there will be false messiahs. And Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name see, saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. All right, so they're going to be people in this, um, uh, what, what's known as the inter-advent period. Inter-advent means between the advents, right? So the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, there's going to be this this undesignated period of time. The disciples surely believe it is months, maybe years. None of them would have guessed 2,000 years at least, but that's how long, we've almost 2,000 years, right? None of them would have guessed that, but, but Jesus, no, here, here we are, okay? Uh, and the first thing he says is, uh, let no, there, there's gonna be those that are gonna be led astray by false messiahs. So there's gonna be people saying they're coming in the name of Jesus. And this happened both during the lifetime of the disciples between 30, this was happening around 33 AD. Uh, so between 33 AD and 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, obviously there's what, a 37 year period. The, it, Jewish historians record numerous people who came and claimed to be the Messiah, right? So what happened then, there are still people claiming to be the Jewish Messiah throughout history. Um, some of them famously so in some parts of the world, for instance, um, the 1400s, there was a guy in Turkey that claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He had so much of a following that there are still people dedicated to this guy's teaching, even to this day. All right. So th there, there are, 
There are small illustrations of this. There are looming large illustrations of those who were false messiahs. They were not the return of Christ, but Jesus said that it would be so, uh, and it was. The second sign is wars are rumors of wars. Verse six, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars so that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So this is the second sign that Jesus gives is that what has been happening since people formed groups in antiquity is going to continue to happen. So one of the reminders of the end is that people are going to continue to rise against people, that war is going to happen. And war was raging in Jesus's day. Even as he was saying that, the, the, uh, the Romans were at war in certain places uh, in the empire. War will eventually come in 65 AD. So about 30 years after this takes place, war will eventually come to Israel, uh, ultimately leading to the destruction of after a brief pause, uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So, so war and rumors of war, that, that's gonna be present in his day, it's present now. The end of verse seven is the third one and it's famine, he says, and there will be famine and, and so there will be famines, right? Famine often is tied to war, but not always. Uh, oftentimes the result of war is famine because uh, the land will be destroyed. Sometimes famine is a natural occurrence uh, sometimes famine is something that God brings about. Uh, so sometimes it's something that just happens. Sometimes it's a judgment of God. Sometimes it's the results of, of mankind. But we, we, all of us are old enough to know in our lifetime of times of famine, but there was also a time of famine in that period of time uh, between uh, 33 AD and 70 AD. There was a distinct period of famine that spread through much of the Roman Empire. Then verse seven ends uh, with the fourth sign and that is earthquakes and earthquakes in various places. So there were numerous earthquakes. There's still earthquakes uh, today, but there were numerous earthquakes during that time. One of which took place uh, on the Eastern side of the Roman empire in, in present day Turkey. And it was written about as being the greatest earthquake that had ever taken place. Now, obviously this is ancient history. So they, they didn't have you know, seismometers and the things that we have to judge earthquakes. But for, for those people, it was, it was an incredible earthquake. There was an earthquake that took place uh, in, uh, in the land of Palestine, in, in the land of Israel uh, during the first century that buried an entire, uh, an entire town. There's a town of Bet Shean um, that is on the Jordan River that um, was completely destroyed by a first century uh, first century earthquakes. So earthquakes were, were a sign then, earthquakes remain a sign now. Uh, the fifth sign is persecution and betrayal. Look at verses nine and 10. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now we're already told that some would fall away because of false prophets or false messiahs, right? The false messiahs are gonna lead some astray now persecution is going to lead some astray and, and that is going to even lead to betrayal. And then they will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So that persecution is going to rise to the point that some people even deny the faith for it. 
And persecution is going to rise to the point that not only do people fall away from the faith, but those people who are once of the faith are going to betray one another. This happens in the lifetime of the disciples. They know great persecution, obviously. If you know the story of the disciples, you know they experience great persecution. Uh, And a lot of that persecution begins right there in that city. It begins right there in Jerusalem. Uh, But not even just for the disciples, not even just for Christians, but for Jewish people still living. Remember, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, okay? And in the destruction of Jerusalem, there was great persecution that came. There was a rebellion that happened in the the decades after Jesus, uh, more than one rebellion that happened. And and great Roman persecution comes, but not only does great Roman persecution come to Jerusalem, but there is bitter infighting. To the point where there's, there's even a period of time, so you've heard of, you've likely heard of the uh, desert uh, fortress of Masada, right? Sits up on this great cliff down in the southern portion of Israel. Uh, there's a group of people, there were a group of zealots who ended up fleeing the Romans and going to Masada. But before that, they controlled for, for a period of time, they controlled the inner courts of the temple while a different group of Israelites controlled the outer court of the temple and they hated one another just as much as they hated the Romans. And they would betray one another as much as, as they could to the Romans. So their experience, exactly what Jesus is saying here, their experience Roman persecution in Jerusalem with betrayal from one group, one faction to the other, Right? Uh, number six is false prophets and verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So for the third time, we see people being led astray. False messiahs are going to lead them astray. Persecution is going to lead them astray and then false prophets. So people claiming truth that is not truth is going to lead people astray. Um, number eight is injustice, verse 12. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. The seven. Yes. No. Yes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You are correct, Barry. That is number seven. Uh, injustice. So what happens is, what is lawlessness, right? It's turning away from the way God is designed for things to be, right? Everybody is, it's, uh, it's like the beginning of Judges. Everybody's doing what he sees right in his own eye right? That's the definition of lawlessness. And because that takes place, people no longer care for other people. And this builds during the immediate period after Jesus, this builds in Jerusalem during that Roman persecution um, to the point, I'm I'm sorry, this is going to sound crude. It, It builds to the point where cannibalism is taking place in Jerusalem. There's historic accounts of, of even to the point of cannibalism, that, that, that people are, um, that the love of fellow man has deteriorated in the land so greatly that even that level of injustice uh, would, would take place because there is no love left uh, for, for one another. Then number eight is hope, the worldwide spread of the gospel. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All right? Now, 
we still talk about the need for the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. We have still identified people groups around the world who have never heard the gospel, um, uh, micro groups, macro groups, that there are still probably 2 billion people on the face of the earth who have ne- out of the eight uh, who have never heard the name Jesus, who would not know where to go for a gospel witness. We recognize that. But when we think about the way the world is represented most often in the way that it is used here in the scriptures. The world didn't necessarily mean the globe as we know it. The whole world in, uh, from, a, from a Roman perspective was what? Rome, <laughs> okay? And so I do think Jesus is talking about global proclamation of the gospel, but when we think about what happens in the first few decades after uh, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, you can say that in a very real way, uh, from, a, from a Roman empire perspective, the gospel was proclaimed to the whole world. It went to all three continents that Rome had Uh, that Rome had authority, that because of the Apostle Paul and others, the work of the disciples um, spreading the gospel uh, for uh, during their lifetime, while the world, while the entire globe had not heard the good news, there was in, in a real way worldwide gospel proclamation. So that's eight. Then we get to kind of this ninth sign. And this ninth sign is much more detailed And this ninth sign is the one that Jesus has already alluded to at the beginning, that none of this will, none of of these stones will stay on top of each other, that there's there's going to be uh, desolation in Jerusalem with the destruction of the temple. And he describes this in verse 15 all the way through verse 28. So all of these others have been like really rapid fire succession, okay, that you can see both a early first century Uh, affirmation of, and then also kind of ongoing affirmation, even through our lifetime, we can see false messiahs, wars, famines, earthquake, persecution, false prophets, injustice, and an ongoing worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Then we get to verse 15, and it's this like narrowing and honing in on this one event. Look what Jesus says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, Let the reader understand. So Jesus is saying, you need to understand what this is. You need to understand your Old Testament. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, a human being would, uh, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there is the Christ, do not believe it. For a false Christ and false prophets will arise from great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if those say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the room, in the the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus now shifts 
and is going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and how terrible this is going to be. Remember, he's, he's just proclaimed at the end of 23, the destruction of Jerusalem. He's foreshadowed it with the, with, with the emphasis on the temple at the beginning of Matthew 24. His disciples have asked the question. And so he's given some general signs. Now he's giving a specific one. And he's very specific about when this is going to take place, when the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the, in the holy place, right? So the abomination of desolation is why he says, let the reader understand that there's going to be something that happens in the temple. And when this happens, if you hadn't already run, you need to run. So there's hope for escape, but following that is going to be great turmoil for those who don't. And there's going to be additional false prophets and false messiahs. So we've already seen additional, we've already seen Jesus foretell of like these general false prophets, general false messiahs, and now even more will come, all right? Then we get to verses 29 through 30, and Jesus says, now the son of man comes back. Now's the return, right? Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will be given its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the power of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in the heavens the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to another. So verses 29 through 30, Jesus, remember the question, when is this gonna happen? And when are you gonna come back? So Jesus is kind of building this. He's progressing, right? some general signs. Here's a very specific one. And then ultimately leading to the return of Christ. So there's gonna be signs in the heavens, right? The, uh, the sun will go darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The, the earth will be shaken. So a great earthquake, right? Then verse 30, which is highly debated, uh, will appear in the heavens, the sign of the son of man. What is the sign of the son of man that people since like even the patristics, even the early church fathers were debating what the sign of the son of man uh, in the sky was going to be. But there's going to be some type of sign accompanied by other signs, moon, sun, stars, earthquake. Uh, and then there'll be a trumpet call and what's gonna happen? Nobody's gonna miss it, right? Um, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather the elect from the four winds. So this is unmistakable that when Christ returns, it's gonna be visible, it's gonna be audible. All the tribes of the earth will see it. Then he's gonna continue to answer his question. When will these things take place? And so he's gonna tell a couple of stories that are gonna help people understand when they're gonna take place. The first of them is talking, it specifically talks about that current generation. He picks up in verse 32. From the fig tree, learn, this, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word uh, will not, my words will not pass away. So Jesus 
on one hand, this is, this is very clear and it's, it's coming. It's coming soon, right? This generation will not pass away. Then as to the point of, well, can we know when? Can you give us a date? You know, circle something on the calendar. Maybe we can plan around it. Jesus tells another story. He says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. Let's do some good Trinitarian theology really quick. Jesus has limited himself in some ways during his earthly ministry. So that's what Jesus means when he says, not even the son knows, okay? He's, he's talking about his, his time right then as, as the Messiah, that he's, he's limited in this, in this knowledge, but the father only. For as when the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be in the coming of the son of man. Then, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let the house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not know. So as to the timing, here's what Jesus says. I can't even tell you. Can't tell you, but you need to be ready. You need to be ready. Today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, next millennium. If Jesus had told them that we would still be talking about these words 2,000 years later, you have to wonder what it would do to the disciples. But the warning is still the same. Be ready. Now, I told you at the beginning, different camps of, of, of end-time theology have thought about this Olivet Discourse in different ways. Some see it as all already fulfilled, except for that final step of the coming, you know, you don't know the day and the hour. Some see it as none, and some see it in the middle. So let's talk about what those are based off of some of those doctrinal camps that we established last week. First, amillennialism. Those who don't, those who tend to read uh, this, the prophetic scriptures from a preterist uh, interpretation, meaning they see full fulfillment in the days of those who were hearers of it. They have the best grasp of verses 32 through 35, okay? Because they get to say without having to explain anything else. Now, just because there's an explanation that may need to be made doesn't mean that the, that the interpretation is wrong. But sometimes the simplest one is the best one, right? And that's what, the, that's what a preterist, an amillennialist would say about this. They would say, we've got the best grasp of verses 32 through 34 because everything that Jesus says in Matthew 24 happens while Peter, James, John, and all the rest are still alive. It happened during their lifetime in 70 AD. At least some of them were martyred before that, but the generation was still very much alive. So the generation of Pharisees and scribes that Jesus pronounces the woes to, the generation of people living in Jerusalem, all of that has already happened. Now, there's very few, few pure preterists still out there. Most people who would be amillennialists today, most people who would view this as, would view this as mostly fulfilled and partially symbolic. So it would be kind of a combination of preterist and idealist. That the parts that don't necessarily fit with earth, meaning like, the stars falling from heaven, the moon, like these things that, that you, can, you can objectively say this has not happened yet, 
they would say that there's symbolism there leading up to the, the, the great return of Christ. But still most of this, if not all of it, fully fulfilled and its fulfillment happens. There's actually a little bit of disagreement here, um, uh, whether it's kind of begins in 70 AD and lasts until lasts through the Jewish persecution. There was a great Jewish persecution alongside of Christian persecution in the Roman empire lasting from the mid sixties, uh, through mid sixties AD through, um, like 140 AD. There, there was, there was, periods of great persecution for the Jewish people. And oftentimes Christians were persecuted because of their ties to Judaism. We're often persecuted together. So when we think of Christians like in the, um, you know, uh, in the gladiator battles and, you know, the arena and all of that, there were Jewish people standing often right beside them, that, that these things often go hand in hand. And so there's, there, there, there's oftentimes people that would view that whole period kind of as, as the fulfillment. But certainly the height of the fulfillment is um, Titus, who was uh, general of the Roman army, who eventually becomes, he eventually becomes, he eventually becomes Caesar. He becomes the emperor. But Titus um, uh, attacks Jerusalem 64, 65 AD, takes a little bit of a break because there's another war he needed to go to, comes back in 69 AD, of sieges Jerusalem uh, and ultimately stands in the temple, um, or as soldiers do, making sacrifice to the Roman standard. And so a preterist would say that's the, that's the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. That's the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about. That's what happened. Okay. And that's it. And, and it's, it was fulfilled and all that's left is Christ to come. And, and surely you can obviously see then they would see this long period of time um, because, between all of this kind of being fulfilled and, and where we live now. Then there's the complete opposite view, which is the futurist view. This is primarily held by dispensationalists, by pre-tribulation, pre-millennial uh, rapture people. We would basically say just about all of this is still yet to come. Some of it has some similarities to what the Jewish people experienced during the Roman persecution. Some of it has some similarities to what um, Christians then and Christians today experience. But all of this is really fulfilled in the future. All of this is not yet. Requiring what? A new, a new temple. Okay, if there's going to be an abomination of desolation that has not happened yet, it's not going to happen in the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount. Okay, it's going to require a new temple. So built into that um, theological system is uh, a resurgence of Israel, which all of this coincides together, right? The rise of dispensationalism within the West, this futurist view, which was not highly popularized until the late 1800s, early 1900s, really kicks off coinciding with what event? Is the end of World War II and the establishment of Israel as a nation in, now I'm gonna talk a lot more about that next week. I'm gonna talk a lot about Israel next week, okay? I'm not answering that question yet, 
but it, it coincides there, right? And so they're like, oh, look, this is, this is it. And eventually they're going to rebuild a temple. And so that, that may be, you know, right before or even during, many will say during the time of tribulation, um, a temple will be rebuilt. There'll be um, uh, old covenant sacrifices will start again. And then um, most often they would say the Antichrist, a future world leader, will commit an abomination of desolation that Daniel was talking about and that Jesus was talking about, um, and which starts then the great tribulation, which is the second half, the last three and a half years before the visible return of Jesus. And they would argue for a non-visible return of Jesus uh, at, at the beginning of that time. So you have these two really competing views. One, all of it is already done. One, none of it is yet done. Then you kind of have this middle view, okay? The middle view is gonna be held by historic premillennialists. It's gonna be held by some progressive dispensationalists. Last time I talked to you about traditional dispensationalism uh, and then progressive dispensationalism, which has softened that view and really embraced what's known as kind of a now, not yet understanding of, uh, of the end times, which, which would say this, there is a fulfillment in the first century and a representation in the ongoing persecution of the church in the inter-advent period. So during the church age, there's this ongoing fulfillment, but that there is a historical fulfillment that, that fulfills what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent you, uh, your house has left you desolate, right? So that, that there is a literal fulfillment of that in 70 AD, meaning that no additional work is required on the Temple Mount to fulfill the abomination of desolation, that that happened when the Romans uh, sacked Jerusalem and made pagan sacrifices uh, in Israel about 40 years after Jesus uh, made this pronouncement. But then what we see basically from verse 21 on is, is the, the tribulation that the church is going to experience, that the great tribulation that the church experiences is not some future event, um, or at least not some defined future event, but really is just representative of what the early church experienced in their tribulation and what we would, would the church has continued to experience uh, as the gospel has spread around the world. So those are the three kind of views. If you're curious of the way that, that I tend to approach this, I tend to take that last one. I tend to take the middle view that sees the, the fulfillment of Jesus. Um, so if you're wondering, no, I don't believe in a future uh, abomination of desolation. I believe what Daniel has said about that and what Jesus has said about that was fulfilled in the lifetime of the disciples, fulfilling the lesson of the fig tree there that, that Jesus gives, that this will happen during that generation, but that it is, but then when you get to verse 36, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. So all of that has happened and yet Jesus tarries and that there's kind of this ongoing persecution uh, of the church. All right. Now I'm already at 7:15. I needed to have been at like seven at this point. So I'm not getting through all of this. I do want to get through one more thing and kind of hopefully make some connection for you. So here's the connection that, that I, want to, I want us to look at. If, if there is 
a, and I'm, I'm having to connect it through my personal understanding, but I can connect it through, through the preterist view. I can connect it to the, through the futurist view as well, okay? If Jesus is talking in Matthew 24 about this great tribulation, about the signs of the end, about false prophets, false messiahs, earthquakes, famines, wars, all of this, how does that align with the bulk or at least a good portion of the book of Revelation, right? Because the book of Revelation talks about a lot of those same things, right? And John writing that um, in three different cycles talks about seven judgments of God. Uh, the first is, the, seal, is, the, is the, 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 seal, the opening of the seven seals, then the sounding of the seven trumpets, then the pouring out of the seven bowls, Revelation 6, then there's an interlude, Revelation 8 and 9, then there's an interlude, and then there's Revelation 15 and 60, right? And these things kind of correspond not only to one another, obviously there's three of them, which is a significant number, then there's seven within each, which is a significant number, but there's also these interludes, these, these other things that John sees, other visions that John has, and there's all of this connective stuff to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, that, that kind of fits some pieces of the puzzle together, okay? So what's happening here in these, um, these three different progressive unfoldings of God's judgment, uh, the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgment, and the bowl judgment, is progressive level of judgments with interludes depicting what will happen to followers of Christ. So we've got judgment of God, here's what's happening to the people of God. Judgment of God, here's what's happening to the people of God. Judgment of God, and then, and then the end, all right? So let's just look at these really quick. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna mow through this, okay? So just, I wanna get us to the end. None of this I'm, I'm intending to talk about in, in great detail. But the first is Revelation chapter six, where we see these seal judgments. Each one of these is a seal that's opened. Folks, one day I'll preach through Revelation and we will go just real slow. That's not what this is intended to be, all right? Each of these seals is opened, and one of them is war, the first one, right? Unrest, famine, sword, persecution, earthquake, and the earthquake is accompanied by signs in heaven, right? Sun, moon, stars. Does that sound anything like what Jesus said in Matthew 24? Yes, it actually should sound almost exactly like what Jesus said in Matthew 24 intentionally, okay? So, so John's like, here's, here's the judgment of God kind of poured out um, and it's gonna look like war, red, unrest, famine, sword, persecution, earthquakes, signs in the heaven. Then there's this interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal where John sees this 144,000 witnesses and this great converted mass of people before the throne of God in Genesis 7, right? This uncountable mass of people before the throne of God. And that happens between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, and the seventh seal is silence. And then what happens? The seventh seal leads to the next set of judgments, the trumpet judgments. This is in Revelation 8 and 9. And this shows... So the first ones were things like war, unrest, famine, sword, persecution. These are like action, Right? The next is results. The first one is a third of the vegetation is burned up. 
Then a third of the sea creatures die. Then a third of the world's water becomes useless. Then a third of the sky becomes dark. Then there's tormenting locusts. Then ultimately a third of mankind is killed. These are six trumpet judgments that are all results in many ways you could connect back to the previous ones, right? As there's war and unrest and famine and sword and persecution and earthquakes, what happens to the, to the world, right? In some ways, these are just consequences of the sinful nature of man. Vegetation's destroyed. The sea is destroyed. The water is useless. The, the sky becomes you, right? We just have this progressive worsening of the consequences of sin. Then, just like we saw between the sixth and seventh seal, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, there's another interlude. Two, actually. One, John's told to eat this scroll that's very bitter to him. And there's this talk of these two witnesses. In many ways, saying the same thing that he was saying in the first interlude, that there's this, right, in the first interlude, there's 144,000. And what's the result? This great throne, this great throng of people before the throne of God. And now there's this which there's ties to, to the calling of Ezekiel in the, in the bitter scroll. But there's this understanding within the people of God that the, the more we preach, the more persecution is going to come. That's, that's what the bitter scroll is. The two witnesses representing the law, the prophets, the, everything that was pointing to the gospel. And as, as these things are proclaimed, there's, there's greater persecution, right? Then the seventh trumpet judgment comes. It's the announcement of God's reign. Not silent this time, now an announcement, but accompanied by the same exact thing. The silence at the end of the first, lightning, thunder, earthquakes, the announcement of God in chapter nine, lightning, thunder, earthquakes, leading then uh, to the final seven, the bowl judgments, sores on those who took the mark, uh, sea turning to blood. These are even worse, right? It gets progressively worse. Rivers turn to blood, sun scorched people, uh, the, even the beast's kingdom, the kingdom of the world is thrown into the darkness. River dries up, preparing the way from the army of, of the east, the king of the east. Um, and then just like we saw in the, in the first, the last one of the first one was silence, accompanied by thunder, lightning, earthquakes, then announcement of the Lord's reign, accompanied by the same things. And now the pro proclamation of the end, thunder, lightning, earthquakes. The interludes are what help us. Right? When we see what's happening between the three, because what happens between the trumpet, actually the, that second interlude happens between the sixth trumpet and the seventh, and then after the seventh trumpet and before the bowl of judgments is a series of visions of Satan almost winning and then the people of God overcoming by the blood and the word of his testimony. That's where that verse comes from, right? We will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony, right? So it's this, Satan almost wins, the church overcomes. Satan almost wins, the church overcomes. And it's dragons and it's all manner of stuff, but this is what it is. Satan overcoming and the church come, overcoming. But when we read that, we read it together with Matthew 24, we see all of this overlap. We see all of these same signs. Now, John being an apocalyptic author is very vivid with it. Jesus is just talking to his disciples. John's writing a piece of literature. He's very vivid with it. In some ways, he's more descriptive of it. But I think what Jesus is describing, these signs and judgment leading into the end is the exact same thing that John is describing, just differently, using different literary devices and certainly in a lot more detail um, and a lot more symbolism. 
threes and sevens, twelves, uh, even 144,000, right, is, is a multiple of, of 12. This is, all of these things mean something. Three is the, three and seven, three, the number of God, seven, the number of completion, 12, the number of God's church, man, you know, not man, man's the number six. And so all of these things are, are in, included in there. But we've already seen that there are some people that look at Matthew 24 and see it all is already happening and some is none is already happening and some it's kind of a middle position. So how do these people view this now? Well, those that view it, Matthew 24 is all has already happened. Guess what? You know how they view Revelation? They view it as all has already happened. That all of this was stuff that was happening during the rule of the Roman Empire. And, and, and that, you know, the, the, um, the beast kingdom is Rome, Right? likely Nero, but the beast kingdom is, is Rome. And, and the judgments that were happening were actually tied to events that were taking place uh, during the first century, maybe spilling some into the second century. Oftentimes they'll see this as, uh, they'll see an early writing of, of, of um, Revelation. Some people argue for a writing of Revelation in the 60 ADs, because if Revelation is written in the 60s, then guess what? All of this could be leading up to the destruction of the temple, that both of those talking about the same exact thing. Those who take a futurist view that see all of us futurists read this, they would say as literally as possible. And they would read these, these three judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as actually successive tellings of a definitive period of time where God is increasingly pouring out his judgment in a more and more serious pattern and that these things actually do follow one after another. An idealist view, as we talked about last week, just really sees this as symbolism of the ongoing struggle between good and evil and what happens when people, people and peoples reject Christ. That the more the world rejects Christ, the worse things become for them that that's, that's what's being symbolized there. But there's also a combined view that these are real events that, 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 that are describing things that were meaningful to that first century church, those seven churches that John is writing to, uh, while at the same time describing an ongoing and even possible future judgment. There's and, and great similarities between the now and not yet. Now, I wanted to answer this question. I'm going to save it for next week. I wanted to answer the question, how much of any of this is the church going to live through? Because that's probably one of the greatest questions. When I was a kid and somebody would preach on this stuff when I was in church, that was the greatest question that I had, right? How much of this is the church really going to live through? I don't have time to unpack that as well as I would like to tonight. And so I'm, I'm going to punt. I have it prepared, but I'm going to punt because I don't want to rush through that uh, all that quickly. So I'm going to pick up next week there. And here's where I want you to, here's where I want you to end. And I, I'm going to try to do this every, every week because we're going to, now that we've got our terms defined, we're, we're going to walk through different texts and I'm, I'm going to want you to end. You, you, need to ask the, you need to ask these questions and you need to, I think be convinced in your own heart while being gracious with others, recognizing that somebody else is going to come to a different position. But you need to ask yourself, how am I really going to read and apply Matthew 24? And how am I going to read and apply the judgments of Revelation? Do I think those are things that fully happened in the past? Do I think those are things that are happening, that are going to happen in the future? 
Or am I going to approach this as some type of combination, things that, that found a limited fulfillment, but yet I will have a greater fulfillment? And if so, which ones and, and, and where and how am I going to find my place in that? All while recognizing the person sitting next to you may come to a different conclusion and your, your pastors, by the way, Michael and Brian and I, I stepped out of my office. I was in the midst of preparing this and sometimes I just need a break. Um, and I stepped out of my office and all of a sudden we found ourselves in the hallway a few hours ago talking about this. And I think I can pretty definitively say that the three vocational pastors of this church disagree on this. <laughs> like all three of us, like it's not two versus one. It's one versus one versus one, probably. But we're very gracious in the conversation and there's places that we align and places we don't. Knowing the not five non-vocational pastors of our church as well as I do, there's, there's likely some agreement in there, but I certainly know there's also some disagreement in there. And here's what I can tell you. We are a unified bunch of brothers who love this church and love one another, and I believe can lead well and guard the doctrine of this church while still disagreeing on the nature of some of this stuff. So I use that as an example to say, be convinced in your own heart. Read Matthew 24 this week. Um, read through those, those, those cycles of judgment and revelation and ask, but ask the question. And don't say, well, I've always been told that, and I'm just gonna attack where probably most of you are in the room because it's where I was and where I grew up. I've always been told that this is like this roadmap to the end. Listen, if you will ask good questions and still end up that this is a roadmap to the end, then more power to you. I'm glad that you ended up there, okay? But I want you to ask the question why. I want you to get there in the text, not just because somebody wrote a book or a series of books and you read them and thought, that sounds great, let's, let's, go, with, let's go with that. I think we all need to be challenged in our preconceptions um, because they, like I said last week, I gave some warnings and one of them was this, they all have issues. And I know what my issues are. <laughs> I know that taking a middle ground position on some of this and saying, yes, some of it was then, and yes, some of it is now, and possibly even in the future, I recognize that I get some places where I get a little shaky. Um, but you need to understand there's shakiness on, on both my left and my right too. But I think it's still worth asking the question. So read those things. Um, Read those books that I recommended you. I think, I think those will help. And then next week, I'm going to start with how much of Matthew 24 and how much of Revelation 6 and, and 8 and 9 and, and 15, how much of that are we really going to live through? Because I, I think I have, a, I have a definitive position and I'll present all of them and then present mine. And then we're also gonna ask some questions next week as it relates to the, the 70 weeks of Daniel and ultimately, what I think is a big question, and that is, where does, what is the relationship between Israel and the church? And why does that matter for all of this? Because really, that is a huge question, particularly as it comes to things like the, the weeks of Daniel um, and, um, and the millennial reign of Christ uh, on, in, on into eternity. All right, so let me pray for us. We'll be done. That was a quick hour. God... Thank you for helping me. I, I just, I pray um, we will be sure of those things that the Bible is sure of. And thank you that, that 
you spoke to your disciples and uh, your Holy Spirit inspired them to write it down and we can know it. Um, we thank you that we can have, uh, that I see affirmation of the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ and the fact that you said not a single stone would be left on itself and that is still true today. Um, that in the lifetime of those that you said it to, you fulfilled that prophecy. Um, and so thank you, God, for that affirmation and that those things that haven't happened yet, I can believe will because I see fulfillment in what you have already said uh, would, would come to pass. Let us do uh, the hard work and grapple with these questions, testing what, testing maybe even long-held beliefs um, while we're also being generous and gracious and loving um, towards those who uh, we may challenge and who may challenge us uh, on, on what we hold. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for those that joined us online. Look forward to having you back next week. Thanks for, for those in the room.